Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm joined today not by one but by two guests on the podcast. Uh, one is uh, Ewan Lovett-Turner, the head of Investment Trust Research at Numis Securities, another of the big broking firms that uh, operate in the Investment Trust space. And then later on, I shall be joined by Ben Rogoff, the manager of the Polar Capital Technology Trust, a trust that has performed spectacularly well over the last decade, uh, but has sold off quite sharply this year in line with tech stocks generally and the overall equity markets. It's a trust that's uh, widely followed by retail investors and uh, always an interesting discussion to be had with Ben, the manager. Before that, though, I should say that this is going to be the last podcast for a couple of weeks. I am taking a break in line with many market participants, but we will be back at the end of August when I will be ready to give you all the details about the new format we're going to be pursuing through the autumn and beyond. It's been a very interesting week in the markets. We've had a very gloomy assessment by the Bank of England of the outlook for the UK economy. More on that in a moment. And uh, we've also had uh, jobless figures out in the United States. But as I'm recording this, which is on Friday afternoon, the equity markets have actually had a pretty reasonable week. The S&P 500, as I'm talking, is trading around the level it was at the start of the week, having been higher. Uh, And that's been true of most equity markets. While in the bond market, yields have continued to settle down. They did spike quite sharply this morning. Uh, So finishing the week around the level they were at the start of the week. So it is a curious state of affairs. I think we've never had such a gloomy outlook from the central bank as the one which the Bank of England delivered when it raised interest rates by half a percentage point this week and warned that the UK was heading towards peak inflation of 13% and probably a recession which could last as long as four or five quarters. Yet in the face of all that, the markets uh, have remained calm, as I've said, and indeed uh, continue their little rally till the start of this week from mid-June, which has seen uh, quite an impressive turnaround. I should remind listeners that if you want a list of all the announcements from investment companies that have been made this week, uh, you can find those on the Moneymakers website behind the Moneymakers Circle paywall. We have a very modest subscription model where for a couple of pounds a week you can get access to all these announcements, links to the relevant stock exchange announcements and our own content, which this week includes a profile of the Ruffer Investment Company, ticker RICA, as well as my own notes on current market opportunities. So we're going to kick off by uh, talking to Ewan Lovett-Turner about the markets and what indeed has been happening to investment trusts over the course of this year. There isn't any fundraising news this week uh, and there's one or two corporate announcements that are of interest Uh, But we'll pick this up along the way and uh, head straight into a discussion of the markets and then investment company results. We're not going to be going through all the investment company results. There's a lot of them this week. First couple of weeks in August tend to have a lot of announcements relating to periods ending the 30th of June. Uh, But as I said, you can catch up with those on the website. And I will do a quick roundup at the very end of those we haven't had time to discuss. So, Ewan, let's kick off by hearing your take on what's been happening in the market, this rather bizarre counterpoint between very gloomy outlook from the Bank of England and still rather calm markets. 
yeah, it's really a, a very interesting times with um, yeah the rate increase to one point seven five percent following on from the US going up to two and a half um, a week or so ago, and that gloomy outlook from the Bank of England. We've also seen it from the IMF reducing its global growth outlook for this year and coming years, and, and highlighting. Lots of downside risks. The IMF actually was, uh, yes, gloomy and more uncertain outlook, which was an, another one that doesn't really cheer us all up when we hear these things. But this raising interest rate expectations and raising interest rates to tackle that inflation has really been the theme of the whole year. And we've seen all major equity markets be weak and pretty much all major asset classes be weak this year as investors have shifted their thought process, their valuation of risk and discounting of future cash flows to adjust for that higher rate environment. And that's hurt particularly the growth biased uh, equities and growth biased investment companies in our world. And uh, and what people have been looking at now is, is to what degree is that priced in to markets? And I've looked at some figures on the major equity markets over the last 20 years. And uh, and what you see, we've had a derating this year. But in fact, probably most of them, you're kind of close to your long run averages over that 20 year period. You're closer to your long run averages compared to the lows that we've seen in, in those moments of capitulation. So people trying to work out whether we're priced in, that sort of gives the indication that there could be scope for further leg downs. But we've got some of the managers in the universe who are a bit more positive and, and, and starting to consider adding a bit of risk. In terms of the performance and what we've seen in the investment companies world over the last week and month, I'd say we, we've actually had um, a bit of a change around. And in fact, it's been those growth stocks that have been leading the way. So perhaps the market taking the view that, that some of these rate rises were already priced in and some of that negativity priced in. And, and over the last week, you've seen the NAVs of investment companies up overall about 2.1% uh, versus a 1.5% rise in the FTSE all share in the um, the seven days to the close on the 4th of August, uh, whilst the MSCI world was up about uh, that 2% as well. So broadly in line uh, during this week. And there's been a bit of discount narrowing this week from, from 76 to around 7.1% to last night's close but still significantly wider than we saw at the start of the year, which was more like um, 2.73%. So uh, we've seen a bit of narrowing this week, but uh, overall the year has seen some significant widening. So this is a relatively quiet period at the moment, of course. We are in August and uh, it's often said the big boys are away, they've gone to the beach and therefore you know, the markets tend to be quite quiet. That might be another factor here. But um, in terms of what's been moving in the investment trust sector, What's been happening over the last uh, sort of week and month? And uh, how does that compare to what's been happening over the years so far? I certainly agree with you that things are starting to quieten down for that summer period. Um, lots of people catching up on their holidays and, and certainly I will be in a couple of weeks time. What's been going on more recently, really the last month are similar themes, which is a slight reversal of what we've seen in the first half of the year where now we're seeing a, a bit of a recovery in, in more of the growth and technology stocks. So a number of the best performers over the last week, and it's kind of mirrored over the same month, are growth buyers funds like uh, Keystone Positive Change up around 12%, uh, one of the strongest in share price terms over the last week. Uh, high sig- single-digit returns from the likes of Scottish Mortgage, Bailey Gifford, 
US growth and Edinburgh Royal Wide, all, all uh, Bailey Gifford managed with a growth approach. Alliance Technology, a strong performer, along with Manchester and London as well. And, and also smaller companies, funds up around 5%, include Smithson, European smaller company, managed by Janice Henderson and European assets of uh, now Columbia Threadneedle. But the strongest performer overall in the, in the last week is actually, of all things, uh, JP Morgan Russian, which is up around 20% in share price terms with, um, I think, quite a lot of retail speculation about um, what the valuation of assets could be if, if sanctions are perhaps lifted or it could trade its Russian securities. Um, reflecting that, it sits on about a 100% premium to the um, published NAV. Uh, I think it's, it, it might well be many years before we find out what the, the resolution to that is. In the meantime, the fund's looking to shift its focus to allow it to invest in more emerging Europe and, uh, and Middle East. The thing there, of course, is that basically they've marked all their actual Russian holdings to zero and they've got a lot of cash left. But if they ever do have a residual value, then if Russia ever comes back into the mainstream financial markets, then uh, the hope, I guess, of those people who are backing this is that they will one day be worth something. So it's a pretty speculative thing. And I guess we could say also as a bit of a surprise in a way, who would have predicted that, as you were implying, any more than... You know, people predicted that the ruble would be quite so strong as it has been. <laughs> so there's one of the many contradictions we come across in uh, in financial markets. Uh, you mentioned in terms of the general level of discounts, you know, having widened out from where it was at the start of the year. How does uh, that kind of move compare to what we've seen in the past? Obviously, there's two parts to that. Uh, there's equity trust and there's also uh, alternative assets. So how, do, how does what we've seen in terms of the average now compare to what it's been like at uh, significant uh, moments in the past? Looking at that long-term history, and it, it is a particularly sharp derating. We obviously saw something similar in terms of speed and, and quantum around uh, COVID and, and March 2020. In the run-up to, to Brexit, it was more of a slow and steady derating. You're almost seeing sort of of the quantum of a similar size to the GFC as well. So a very sharp derating in a short period of time. But part of that, I think, is is a nuance in the numbers as well, because the market is actually relatively concentrated at the moment. The likes of Scottish Mortgage and, and Smithson being large proportions of the overall market cap of, of the sector. And therefore, that's seeing a, a disproportionate impact. But But definitely... Uh, a lot more value around than we we saw even you know recent months ago and certainly during 2021. So uh, a few bargains available for people who are willing to search around for them. Okay, so we're going to move on. We're going to talk about uh, some corporate events. Uh, we would talk about fundraising, but there's really nothing to report on fundraising at the moment because August is not a time when investment companies or indeed most companies go out to raise money unless they're in dire straits. And then we'll talk about some results, pick out some of the results. There have been an awful lot of results coming out, mainly sort of first half results coming out in the last week or so. So we're not going to be comprehensive this week. We're going to uh, pick and choose a little bit and we'll have another separate uh, sector review as we did last week with the renewables. We'll have another sector review for uh, commercial property and infrastructure, general infrastructure in uh, future weeks. So uh, I might mention them just in passing at the end. But let's pick out one or two that have reported this week then and see... uh, what Ewan thinks about some of them. So first of all, I have to mention RIT, uh, ticker RCP. They have produced some interim results for the end of June. Tell us what you uh, took away from that one, uh, Ewan. So uh, yeah, RIT Capital Partners, the sort of Rothschild family fund is its history. Really, these results 
showing it, it does what it says on the tin, really. It aims to insulate against market downturns and participate in the upside. Its NAV over the, the first six months of the year was down 8.8% versus a 14.7% decline in the MSCI or country world. That's 50% sterling, 50% uh, local currency, that index, a, a slightly quirky one. But ultimately, that's what RICAP uh, looks to do is, is protect that downside uh, not necessarily an absolute return type approach, but a, a protection in the downside. And I think that's a good result given uh, a couple of the major themes in that portfolio are, are biotech and China, which have clearly had a difficult period. And it also has some venture type exposure, which has been a very strong contributor over recent years, um, but clearly more of a headwind this year. And I think that proves its relatively sophisticated approach of of hedging some of those riskier exposures and also playing some of those themes in relatively defensive ways and also having a core of uh, capital protection and absolute return type investments in there which offer it some some protection in the weak market so um, a very well-renowned fund doing what it says on the tin. And uh, how does it trade obviously it, in terms of the way it performs it sits somewhere between the defensive you know asset trust the capital gearings and the roughers and so on and uh, some of the other more equity-oriented uh, generalist trusts. But uh, in terms of how it's rated at the moment, I mean, uh, is it, it tends to move from a premium to a discount. Where is it at at the moment? And uh, is that any significance in, uh, in in that particular number? So it's trading currently at around a 4.5% discount. And there has been uh, more volatility in its, its share price and, and, and that discount than you see in the likes of a capital gearing, certainly, which, which operates a zero discount policy buying back shares at a small discount and issuing at a small premium, which really manages that volatility of the discount. Similarly, for personal assets, operates a similar scheme. Whilst RICAP doesn't have that in place um, and has less frequent NAV reporting just monthly. So you get a bit more investor uncertainty around that and um, a little less frequent communication on, on strategy, style and positioning. So you see a bit more volatility in the discount, which is not naturally what you want for a defensive fund. But if you can look through that and the underlying NAV uh, being relatively low volatility, you can potentially pick up that at attractive valuations. You mentioned earlier we talked about uh, Scottish mortgage uh, being one of, you know, having picked up again, having had a very dramatic fall so far this year. I thought we might just pick up at this point on what they've been saying about their, their private holdings, because obviously RIT has some private equity holdings as well, uh, have done for many, many years, always been part of their model. And uh, it's obviously become a very important part of the Bailey Gifford approach is to hold private equity, uh, unlisted companies rather. And uh, Scottish Mortgage has it has more of that than almost any other Bailey Gifford Trust. So uh, what have they done? Obviously, there's been quite a lot of concern about uh, the impact of that, we don't know quite how they're being valued. That's one of the issues with any kind of private equity trust. So what has Scottish Mortgage come out and said uh, in the last few days about how they actually value their private equity trust? And do you think that's going to help reassure some of the holders of uh, Scottish Mortgage who've seen the share price obviously plunge quite a long way and might be worried that this the privately held companies are being understated on the books, so to speak? Yeah, so Scottish Mortgage actually has one of the most proactive approaches to valuing its unquoted that I think you see in the market across um, across the listed funds and the private equity market in general. It really does see that unquoted area as, as a key driver of returns in the long term, as many companies haven't 
sought to move to the public markets. They staying private for longer. And therefore, if you want to participate, particularly in these fast growing companies, then that you have to search in some of these unquoted areas. They're slightly different from a traditional private equity in that they're taking minority stakes rather than taking control positions and, and trying to change things operationally. They're using that stock picking and, and thematic approach to pick the companies and then they retain a minority stake. Around 30% of the portfolio is unquoted, so quite substantial, but they've been very, very active in revaluating this. Their normal process, which they've released an article on their website this last week and, and it expands on what they've, they have tried to get out there historically, but I don't think is well understood by the market. But they revalue a third of their private portfolio each month based on the underlying methodology that, that they've had from their independent valuer. So they're updating or the independent valuer updates that each month. But between the months, they also look at trigger points. So if there's been major moves in market comparables, they will make an adjustment. And historically, that's been a 10% move in in the market comparable, but they've actually reduced that to 5% in these market conditions. And so as a result, there's been over 350 revaluations of the 80 or so unquated investments in the portfolio. That's in H1. So very, very active approach. And you can take some comfort that the valuations are up with events and you don't need to factor in future markdowns to those unquoted to reflect the whatever moves have been happening in the equity markets. The operational performance and any fundraising events also has a, a significant impact in that valuation methodology as well. It's such a, a big issue at the moment, isn't it, about uh, how you value privately held equity investments. And as you say, the way they do it isn't quite the same as others do it. But there is a genuine concern. That. I mean, we could also perhaps compare that with the results which came out this week from uh, Pantheon International, which is uh, one of the bigger conventional private equity trusts, which invests both in other private equity funds and also has some direct and co-investments itself. They put out what a very strong uh, set of figures this year for the year to end of May. Uh, NAV total return, I think, up about 30% against the uh, MSCI World Index uh, total return of 7.8%. So, you know, very strong performance. But the market has basically, you know, marked the markets down. Even while the NAV is going up, the, the share price has been marked down because it's gone to a very, very big discount. So there is a real credibility problem here. And what can the other private equity trusts do to get themselves into a position where they maybe have as much credibility as Scottish Mortgage is trying to have anyway, in terms of the, how up-to-date their valuations are? Yeah, so looking at Pantheon as the example, it released its results to the 31st of May. The underlying valuations for that are still largely based on on the 31st of, of March. It had already released an NAV more quickly than, than these results. So we already had a, a valuation mark on that. But um, the results provide a bit more background and information around that, which showed pretty much all of its buckets performing well, um, particularly venture and, and special situations and growth, um, as well as its, its more mainstream leverage buyouts, parts of the portfolio. And um, what investors are doing, if we look at Pantheon now, it's trading on around a 40% discount to its NAV. Um, and that's investors taking the view that given that the bulk of the portfolio valuation is still based on March, you've had weak equity markets since then, that these private equity uh, companies, one, the valuations are going to have to come down in line with the equity markets 
and also whether they're going to have any operational issues or, or, or the like, a view that private equity has leveraged equity. Um, but in fact, what we're seeing, various companies have re- reported more up-to-date numbers, both in the listed markets and elsewhere. Princess Private Equity would be one managed by Partners Group, which had a NAV in euro terms down about uh, 7.5%, 8% in the second quarter. You've had indications uh, from other private equity groups outside of the listed market of around you know, single-digit decline, 6-8%. It's quite uh, normal. Apex was implied from its portfolio valuations, maybe about a 4% decline over that quarter. Uh, the outlier, possibly Oakley Capital, up 11%. So that operational performance and that portfolio specific can really out- outweigh things. And it's an area where I think the market is being extremely pessimistic about the outlook for, for these valuations and factoring in declines much greater than uh, listed equities. But in fact, uh, a lot of the private equity funds focus on consistent growth companies, which are currently continuing to perform operationally well, which gives them a, a degree of resilience that perhaps the market is underestimating. So even if you take a 10% haircut, say, for the second quarter, uh, but that's before you know this quarter when markets have been improving, it's they're still on a pretty big discount. I mean, Pantheon has been saying it's really trying to make steps to reduce the discount, but there's limited options what they can do apart from disclosure. Buybacks aren't that easy to pull off in the private equity sector. How important do you think this other factor that's always been touted around now, which is that you know wealth managers don't like to have to report the figures they're required to report for the cost of owning these funds? Is that really a factor in why they may be steering clear of some of these private equity trusts? Uh, yeah, certainly. And on buybacks, it was actually an interesting change of stance from, from Pantheon and the board saying that they're looking to be more active in buying back shares, given the level of the discount, which I think is a huge positive. Certainly watching the balance sheets of these companies is, is key, and you don't want them to be uh, overstretching themselves and, and not having enough cash. But I think a proportion of their cash flows being assigned to do some buybacks when the discounts are at levels of 40% is really a a very risk-free way of giving investors some accretion. So that was very positive, and I think they, they bought back yesterday the first sign of that. So that's a great sign. The whole sector, I think, is struggling from investor sentiment around costs. I do think, you know, across the investment companies world, that's, that's potentially the, the biggest risk we see for demand, particularly from wealth managers and also sort of fund of fund managers and, and multi-asset managers, that uh, they're now reporting up the cost ratios and the investment company's cost ratios have included transaction costs, costs of any long-term debt, and performance fees. And whilst we try and push for the lowest costs there can be from management groups, the like of the private equity managers are raising lots of capital outside of listed markets. And therefore, I don't really see these performance fees um, disappearing anytime soon. But you know, some investors are saying, I'm really sorry, I've got to sell my HG capital because it's performed so well and therefore the cost ratio has gone up because of the performance fee and I've got to sell it on that basis, which is nonsensical to me and, and you're having a bit of the, the cost tail wagging the, the investment dog and, and ultimately I think um, investors need to be able to look through that. If you can arbitrage the fact that everyone else is selling purely on cost, you can potentially get some good returns and try and analyse that NEV total return figure which includes is after all um, all of those costs anyway. 
Of course, I guess the other issue there is that if we are going into a bad recession, you know, we've got rising interest rates triggering a recession or contributing to a recession. You know, it will be a little harder for some of these private equity funds to realise the value of their holdings. I mean, they can obviously sell them to each other, but in terms of getting them into into the market listed where that's relevant, it could be a slightly different, harder environment for them. But uh, you would argue not enough to justify this particular level of discount. Yeah, certainly. I, I think the type of companies these private equity funds are owning, sort of resilient growth is a key aspect of that that should do well in difficult conditions. There are some areas that are more venture and and growth investing where you, you've got more revenues and revenue growth and less earnings. And so that, that area of the market very much trying to shift towards profitability. But I think you've seen a number of strong exits from private equity companies and, and selling to other private equity companies has always been part of the business. The IPO market was was used by a number of private equity funds, Apex, citing 2021 as being a, a good environment to sell to the, the listed market. And now you're actually interestingly seeing some private equity companies looking at the listed market and taking some of those companies private because their view is that the listed markets are getting the, the valuation of these things wrong and they can now buy them on the cheap. So that dynamic of who the buyers and the sellers are always changes over time. But yeah, private equity is always sold to other private equity, to trade buyers and, and to the listed market. Okay, so that's uh, what's been going on in private equity. I mean, in terms of the other results we could look at here, I say leaving aside the renewable and infrastructure trusts and the commercial property trusts, all of which are reporting positive NAV total returns over the second quarter, that's obviously been a very uh, safe haven, despite the uh, premiums coming off a little bit in, in some cases. But in terms of all the other results you've got this week, they're obviously nearly all showing negative numbers. And that's not what we would expect because of the way that stock markets have moved. I mean, we mentioned Smithson. Obviously, that's one of the trusts that has uh, been worst affected. It's uh, just produced its uh, interim results again to the end of June. NAV total return down 31.7% versus a MSCI comparator. This is a global smaller companies comparator of minus 13.7%. And the share price return has been even worse, more than 40% uh, because of the discount going out to a discount. So that really is a kind of reversal of fortune. And I guess that's something you might uh, worry about, the impact on retail investors, seeing this kind of volatility in, a, in an investment trust that they've been really flocking to buy for quite a long time. Yeah, it's, it's really the first tricky period we've seen for, for Smithson and focus on, is on global, small and medium-sized companies. And its approach is really seeking that high-quality companies with, with good growth prospects and with that Smithson approach of holding for the long term. And, and that's been a great place to be in recent years, but the trends have very much reversed during 2022 and that growth sell-off has hit it really hard. Uh, with large exposures to technology, consumer discretionary, healthcare, industrials, the areas of the market that have been hardest hit really, and, and fever tree, I believe, was its its biggest attractor. And that the areas that have done well have been energy, utilities, and they just don't fit in the structure of investing for this type of approach. Um, lots of external factors, you know, drive the return prospects for those types of companies, and and so they don't see that quality of earnings. And so it's been a really difficult period and a derating, as you've seen with many of these growth stocks. So um, it will be a test over time to, to see you know, what retail demand, uh, how that is sustained during a more tricky period uh, for performance. Yes, I mean, they were still trading at a premium 
back in February, and just only in, is only after the invasion of Ukraine that they've started to sell off, but it has been a pretty dramatic sell off. Um, and do you think they are doing enough in terms of buybacks? Because this is obviously the first test, as you say, they've had effectively, uh, apart from a brief period during the pandemic. Would one be right to say that the, you know, the board's responsibility, having issued so much stock at a premium, they really ought to be fairly active on the buyback front at this stage when the markets are falling? Yeah, and it has been regularly buying back, and that's good to see. I think the discount got out well into double digits and, and now is more around the 4 or 5% mark. So we feel that you know, buybacks, particularly for funds investing in relatively liquid stocks, are really important, particularly when a company's been issuing shares. I, I think there's a bit of a inherent commitment to try and manage that discount volatility when sentiment shifts and absorb some of that selling if there is a, a shift in you know, particularly that retail demand so that investors aren't hit by that double whammy of, of poor performance and discount widening, which can be really quite you know painful. Those moves are kind of multiplicative rather than additive. So it really makes a big impact in the same way that if you buy a deeply discounted trust and the discount narrows and the NAV performs, you get the potential for very good returns. Um, it can hit you in the other direction. Let's talk also then about Henderson's smaller companies. This is a much longer history, this one. Neil Harmon's been managing this one for, well, I can't remember quite how long, but certainly could have 20 years or so. Quite a popular trust, has a very good uh, long-term track record, sort of steady performance over most years, outperforms most years. Uh, but they too have obviously had a tough period during this. So what can you tell us about uh, their results and uh, how you think they uh, have been doing? It um, was down 17.8% in NAV terms versus about a 9.5% fall for the numerous smaller companies index over the year to May, in fact, so I agree that Neil has a, a tremendous track record over a very long time period. And, and I think he deserves a strong following that he's got on that basis. He runs money in the way of looking for companies, quality growth companies uh, that he can buy at a reasonable price. So looking for companies with strong balance sheets, management teams, competitive positions uh, so that they can continue to grow for the long term. And what we've seen in the first half is that derating of growth. And it's been reasonably indiscriminate and hitting anything with, with any sort of a growth lilt to it. And that some more, more, more sort of quality growth approach has left uh, Henderson Smallers, when you look at the peer group around mid-pack, with some of the more growth orientated, some of the BlackRock uh, managed funds being the weaker performers, whilst Aberforth Smallers on the value end of the spectrum doing a bit better. But I think what might be interesting going forward is perhaps a market that becomes more discerning, more based on fundamentals rather than those big macro moves. We've had the big uh, sell-off based on that. Well, fingers crossed we have. And then you see a bit more fundamentally based, which I think will suit Neil's approach very well. And I think it's good news that we've started to see signs of that M&A picking up. So where companies are looking excessively cheap, you're getting M&A coming in and recovering those shares and, and, and demonstrating the value in some of these companies. So it has been hit a little bit worse than some, but in terms of discount now, uh, I mean, how does it sit? It's somewhere between 10 and 15%. Would I be expecting something like that? And how does that compare with its normal trading range? It has been around 14%. It's 13.4 currently. That is towards the wider end. It certainly did in in the time to stress a little bit earlier in the year, get out to a 18% discount. Uh, but the average over the year is uh, just a bit wider than 10. So uh, a little bit of value compared to history. 
The smaller company sector has been an interesting one in that sentiment towards it does tend to, to wax and wane quite significantly. So it's worth keeping an eye on the discounts. And, and I think we've had one of the sharpest falls in the small cap space when you look over the very long term history. And, and typically this you know, quantum of falls been followed by a period of pretty strong performance. So you know, yes, we've got recession risk, which um, is definitely a concern. But um, I think for the, uh, some good quality companies, there's a bit of a scope for a rebound and, you know, potentially a narrowing of the, the discounts in future. Yeah, so it would need something pretty bad, uh, something like another uh, global financial crisis to send that discount that much wider, you would think. Though I think it did get out to about 25, 30% at one point, at the very worst point in the in the past. Talking about strong and steady performers over many years, uh, next up we might just talk about Fidelity European which is managed by a gentleman called Sam Morse, which has been a very, very steady and consistent performer over the years, uh, not been immune from uh, what's been happening this year. Can you tell us something about their results, which were out this week, and how you uh, assess that one? Again, yeah, as you say, great um, long-term track record through looking at companies that are going to consistently grow their dividends over the long term. So a, a bit of that growth, but a bit of that focus on dividends and earnings. So not the hyper growth end of the market, but growth with some some fundamental backing and sustainability. So I think it's quite interesting given that he was outperforming while sort of the growth theme was doing pretty well. And, and he followed that up with, yes, negative returns in the first half down about 12% versus 15 for the benchmark. But ultimately, I think quite impressive there that he has outperformed the benchmark in a falling market as well as uh, the, the previous rising market. So a very high quality manager that, that's done well over the long term. Interestingly, he thinks that quite a bit of the inflation and interest rate risk might be um, factored into the market already. So you know, mildly positive on, on that sort of basis but does stress that typically if you, you get a bit of a recovery in equity markets, it's often in the sort of lower quality cyclical first, which means that might be an area, you know, a time period when relative performance, you know, it can lag in that recovery rally if we get one. Another company reporting this week was a European Assets Trust, not a directly comparable one, it's slightly different focus, but uh, for example, their NAV total return was down more than 30% and their benchmark down 21%. So, a combination there, the double whammy you were talking about of poor figures and a widening discount. So that's been a strong performer, Fidelity European. Let's uh, talk next about JP Morgan Cleverhouse. This is in the UK equity income sector, which again is a trust with a very long history. Uh, tell us about this one. How have they been performing? Obviously, UK equity income has been a better place to be than uh, many of these uh, overseas markets. Indeed, and the UK market has fared relatively well given its high um, exposure to the energy market or high concentration in the energy market. And Cleverhouse had a pretty tough first six months down uh, nearly 13% versus uh, 4.6 for the FTSE all share. And that reflects, whilst this fund has a, I look at it as a good way of getting mainstream exposure to UK equities with a typically a large cap bias. But it's had that difficult time because it was slightly positioned for coming out of COVID and that recovery whilst we, we clearly had a big turnaround in that. So that's hit relatively recent performance, but the manager's been active in, in shifting the, the portfolio away from that opening up trade uh, to react to the Ukraine war 
increase the energy exposure, increase utilities and solve things like industrials and, and, and cyclicals. This was another example of a manager stressing that he wasn't wasn't calling the the bottom um you know lead manager will William Meaden but thinks that the markets are pricing in a lot of bad news gearing's been mildly increased just to 5% but uh, another case of a manager just thinking we might be seeing better times for equity markets ahead I mean this is a particular one you get quite a decent yield on this I think it's something like 4.7% getting had pushed up nearer 5 I think at one point which uh, traditionally has been a pretty good number to be looking at uh, UK Equity Income Trust. Do you have a, a view about the sector as a whole, um, leaving aside for a moment the differences in style and, and so on? Do you think that the sector as a whole is uh, uh, looking reasonably attractive at this point, given the shift in style that we've seen so far this year, though that may now be reversing? Yeah, so I do think it's an attractive area for yield, particularly the structural benefits of the investment companies, which means they... They have the capacity to stash away some of their, their income in the good times and distribute it in more troubled times. So a bit of smoothing of that dividend. A few of them as well dip into their capital reserves, which is slightly different, but um, less so in the equity income space. And so that does make it inherently a good place for investors to, to look for a, a consistently growing yield. And many have multi-year, multi-decade, including Claverhouse, records of growing their dividends. So I think a 4.7% yield and on Clubhouse itself and the whole sector is trading on an average discount of around 3%. So I think reflecting investors still keen to to get a decent yield from their equity portfolios. But um, yeah, I think that is a good place in the open-ended fund world. You're, You're a lot more exposed to potential dividend cuts. So uh, finally, I think I might test you out a little bit, Ewan, on uh, something happening in emerging markets. We've seen uh, a couple of specialist trusts here. We've had the Mobius Investment Trust, uh, Tigger MMIT, and uh, also we've heard from one of the Vietnamese trusts. But emerging markets, I mean, they have been a tough place to be. The dollar has been very strong, and that's always quite bad for uh, emerging market trusts. But uh, some of the bigger boys in the sector have been struggling. Templeton Emerging Markets, where Mark Mobius used to work, has had a pretty tough time. Do you have a kind of view about this sector? I mean, and if so, where do you think uh, you know investors should be looking for opportunities here? Emerging markets has been a, a difficult place, and you know, particularly in the last you know twelve to eighteen months now, you know, China and its regulatory crackdown. It is an area we thought perhaps was starting to offer a bit of value, but in recent days, you've seen that escalation of the situation in in Taiwan and China. And so a pretty uncertain outlook on that basis. You do have a a number of high quality managers in this space. You mentioned Mobius and that's one that that has been strong in recent years, but uh, again, has suffered this year with its interim showing uh, a nav down nearly 12% versus a a 5.5% decline in the MSCI emerging markets and a 10% plus decline in, in the MSCI frontiers so um you know that hit by the disruption we've seen in in the semiconductor markets the the lockdown in china and quite a lot of exposure to to india so you know that's been a tough place for for quite an interesting fund that has its you know concentrated portfolio uh with small mid-cap exposure and seeking to be somewhat engaged so uh an interesting fund i think some of the others Again, it's been a tough market. You've you've had some with exposure, modest exposure to Russia, 
but that's um, all been sorted out now or uh, removed from portfolios on the mainstream. But yeah, the likes of you know, JP Morgan emerging has always been a, a strong long-term performer, but um, the quality growth again has been a bit of a, a headwind this year. The one sector we don't talk about much on this podcast is the uh, the debt sector, partly because that's mainly uh, still a, an institutional area rather than a retail area. But it's interesting what's been happening. I've noticed there have been some developments at NB Global Monthly Income. Perhaps you might just tell us it's a, it's a kind of corporate story, this, about whether or not it's going to survive, whether shareholders want to keep it alive. Can you just explain what's been happening there in terms of uh, tender offers, continuation votes and so on, and uh, how you think the, uh, the debt sector overall is going to be faring in a in a rising interest rate environment. The listed debt sector is is quite an interesting area because it does differ from what you can get in in your traditional bond funds, open-ended bond funds, in that a lot of the the market is focused on floating rate asset classes. And so currently you're seeing a number of them benefit from that exposing to floating rate assets, which as interest rate rises, you know, traditional debt instruments which offer you a, a fixed income, the value of those instruments tends to fall. But floating rate instruments tend to be more one more resilient and also see their income increase. And so we've seen numerous funds, um, MB, Global Monthly Income being one, increase its dividends a number of times during the course of this year. It's offering around uh, close to a 7.5% yield, distributing 6.75% of NAV. Um, it's a, a best ideas portfolio from Newberger Berman in their sub-investment grade debt category. So covering things like um, floating rate notes, some high yield and CLO debt. So an interesting strategy. It's offered a, a tender offer for 25% of share capital. Well, one tender offer for 25% of each shareholder's uh, holding uh, was the most recent one. And it's just said that it's returning the proceeds for that in the coming days, which is a bit quicker than it was expecting to. It was expecting a, a staged distribution in September and November. It also has some um, sort of six monthly tenders. So expect another one in December for this will be 25% off share capital. Um, so you might be able to exit for more than your basic allocation to the degree that um, others don't tender. And it's currently got a net assets of uh, around 185 million. And if that drops below 150, then um, the board will put forward a vote, a continuation vote or or a wind-up vote. So that'll be an interesting one come the end of the year. We'll see um, the the degree to which shareholders are are wishing to stay in that fund or exit. And therefore, you might get a, uh, a vote to decide on the future of the fund. Right. So they seem to be doing a reasonable job and into a floating rate environment. As you say, that can be a positive, not always a negative for different types of uh, of trust. And it's offering a good yield. So why wouldn't the shareholders want to carry on with this one? I mean, the size limit is presumably that that was set out when it came to market. Was that right? That was, if you were like, the deal that they offered. If it gets too small, it's not going to be economic. So we're going to, we're going to offer you the option to get out of it. Uh, but why would shareholders want to kill it off if uh, it's doing quite a reasonable job? Yeah, it was put in place a, a few years ago as part of a change in strategy. It, it was previously fully focused on US senior loans. And as we saw interest rates come down, the return on the yield on those investments dropped and it became less attractive for investors. And, and so the strategy shifted 
after a period of significant buybacks and, and trading on a discount. And so this protection was put in place to try and start relaunch the strategy, um, target it at new investors and give a backstop that if it becomes too small, which would put it off the radar of many um, uh, wealth managers or, or more institutional investors, there would be a backstop that investors wouldn't be stuck in a, a smaller fund than they would typically wish to own. I uh, just looking through there the list, you know, the size of the trust in this subsector. There are some which are sort of two hundred million plus. I suppose there are a fair few, but uh, there's nothing that's much bigger than that. So, uh, is the whole sector potentially at risk if wealth managers don't want these small, smaller trusts anymore? Well, I think it's about um, well a couple of things: o- offering that consistent yield, offering a differentiated strategy and approach. So. Uh, a couple of funds where I highlight there that run both popular open-ended funds and closed-ended funds. You know, the management group is, is 24 and they run a couple of funds in the listed sector, 24 select monthly income and 24 income. Um, 24 income solely based on European asset-backed securities, 24 select monthly income, more broad. But that's, you know, strategies are really interesting because they run – uh, lower yielding and very much more liquid strategies in their open-ended funds, while these listed funds are slightly higher yielding, slightly lower down the um, capital stack, so a bit more risk in there, but you're generating attractive yield from benefiting from a, a liquidity premium. And so that's where it makes sense to have them in an investment company and puts them on a much better sort of long-term footing that the type of assets you're investing in just aren't appropriate for open-ended funds. You know, similarly, you've got um, biopharma credit focused on, you know, lending to, to the biotech sector, you know, and it's going to be an interesting year or so to follow that given the funding situation in that market. But funds that are focused on those less liquid areas of the market and, and can deliver attractive yield it's going to be really interesting because I think you know, 24 incomes portfolio yield, given its floating rate, has recently moved up in excess of 10% uh, yield. So without changing the underlying risk, but the yield has gone up a number of percentage points. So potentially, uh, perhaps um, often overlooked area, but um, quite an interesting segment of the market. For another take on where we are in the market cycle, I Turn this week to Ben Rogoff, the manager of the Polar Capital Technology Trust. Ben has been manager of this trust, which is now three billion in size, since May two thousand and six, and the record of the trust has been remarkably good, at least in the last ten years, where it's produced an annualized return of very close to twenty percent per annum, which is uh, certainly a very impressive record, and one that reflects the strong performance of technology shares over that period. Polar Capital Technology is still, as of today, over 10 years, still in the top 10 of performing investment trusts behind still Scottish mortgage. So I started off by asking Ben whether he thought that given the sharp fall in his trust share price, down 30% or so, so far this year since the peak and the global sell-off, whether the glory days for technology investing are over. I hope not. Uh, I mean, the tech sector remains, I think, one of the most attractive sectors within the market from a medium to long term perspective. I think we've got some incredible secular tailwinds. The return profile has 
Um, again, I haven't got the numbers to prove it, but it's not that dissimilar with the earnings profile of our companies. I you know, look at forward valuations and you know, roughly where they stood in 2007 after the correction. In other words, much of what we've delivered, certainly since that time frame, has been driven by the company's results, not by multiple re-ratings. So, no, I am still very positive about the sector's prospects over the medium to long term. So valuations have come down in the last six months, uh, clearly, from what you, uh, I think, would agree were fairly giddy heights that we reached in the uh, wake of the pandemic when we had this extraordinary sugar rush in uh, equity markets. But your case would be that uh, valuations come down to their historical averages and are no longer looking expensive on that kind of measure. Would that be a fair summary? Yes, I, I think that's exactly right. Is um, look maybe slightly after the recent bounce. Actually, if you were to look at I don't know the forward PE on the S and P technology sector, then we're probably slightly above a kind of a you know nineties onwards average, but a, a much more normalised starting point today than where we stood you know last year. Now, in the annual report, you uh, very fairly go through a whole range of macro factors that could affect the performance of the equity markets and the tech sector in particular. So if valuations are back now down to average levels, the question that arises is, I think, where direction they go from here in the short term, at least. Uh, you acknowledge, I think, in the annual report that uh, markets could easily go down further from here. It all depends on what happens to the environment, of course. Uh, but what is your thoughts on that particular issue of whether tech sector in particular, whether its uh, future path is in the short term, sideways, up or down? Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, certainly, I'd like to think the annual report you know, lays out our thoughts, but obviously they're fluid. And at the time of writing, it felt to us that you know macro risks had changed, that the central banks that whose interests had been very much aligned to ours, while you know, the sort of uh, fears of deflation that um, really have characterised the market post the financial crisis, you know, those have given way to obviously inflation worries and just watching the POE raise rates today is a good reminder of that. And and so the, the macro, the market backdrop, quite different to where it had stood a while ago. So, yeah, I think the setup is an interesting one in that valuations have returned to average, but the investment backdrop remains quite unusual. And I think it's against, you know, through that lens that we see a, a wider range of outcomes for equity markets and therefore for the technology sector too um, than we have in previous years. But the starting point of valuations is a, is a much healthier one, like I've said, than where it was you know, not that long ago. Uh, how do we assess the, the overall risk reward? I think you know, we look very closely at inflation, which for us is you know, the key focal point for central bankers, quite rightly, and the best gauge on whether or not we are still investing in a favourable backdrop for risk assets or a more tricky one. And our hope is that we're already looking at kind of peak inflation numbers, certainly in the US. That's the hope. But again, it's very difficult to have high conviction in that view. Indeed, it is. But is it possible to generalise at all? I mean, Generalisations are always difficult. I know and not always very helpful. But is it possible to generalise about whether, you know, high inflation or certainly if it settles down at above recent levels, you know, in the medium term, is that generally going to be a positive or a negative for technology stocks before we come on to obviously talking specifically about the kinds that you actually own? Yeah, I think the answer is that, um, you know, the inflationary backdrop has a very large influence on what the, in quotes, right price for risk assets are. 
And of course, then, as you say, it depends then on what type of assets you're buying. Are, are the companies that you're invested in able to pass on price increases? Are they going to be you know, good inflation hedges? Um, you know, the equity asset class in general is better, obviously, than cash and bonds at that. So, um, yeah, I think it's very, very difficult to say with conviction where the inflation rate ends up. Um, I think, obviously, we're looking at you know, fairly um, elevated levels that I don't think will take very long for, for those to normalise. But I think there's a reasonably compelling argument that says that when we settle down, we settle down at higher than where things stood pre-COVID. But again, much of that depends on one's view on globalisation and and lots of very long-term trends that do feel a little, little to me like we may have reached the peak on things like globalisation and freedom of movement of peoples and so on and so forth, which I try to draw out in the annual report. But again, that's much more of a medium-term thing. I think markets will wax and wane much more on whether or not they feel that the central banks have administered enough medicine for now. And of course, you know, we watch things like the shape of the yield curve very closely for a test of that. Taking that line as you've done, would you say, therefore, that uh, even on a reasonably optimistic case, that the absolute levels of return you might be able to obtain from uh, the kind of things that you own will be positive, but might not be as positive as they have been over the last period, if this 20% per annum compound return over the last uh, uh, 10 years, for example? Look, again, I'm, I'm very reticent to make predictions over that time frame just because there's just the number of moving parts there. I, again, I think we've had, an, you know, it's been an incredible period for tech. I think it's fair to say that having been on the wrong side of the market for at least, well, for a decade almost post the tech bubble peak in 2000, you know, the, the, the last cycle very much belong to the tech sector. Will the next cycle belong to us? I don't know. It depends. It really does depend on the inflationary backdrop, like you say. Uh, I think the sector, there's large parts of it that so far at least have been able to handle price increases, uh, cost inflation, and pass it on because there are lots of businesses out there that have got sort of natural monopoly status or indeed create a lot of value for their customers with limited competition. And those companies are, you know, I think looking like very good ways to at least deal with some of the inflationary pressure that's that's going forward. I, I don't know. Look, I, I think the starting point on valuations today is not dissimilar to where it stood in 2007. But, you know, again, on a decade-long view, the forward PEs were much more compressed than they are today. So if the earnings trajectory of the sector is similar over the next 10 years, which would be pretty good, I'd take that, I think, as, a, as an investor. You know, again, I think it wouldn't be unfair to expect lower returns because the starting point on valuations is obviously much higher than where it stood in 2012. Okay, so well, let's talk about something else then. Uh, I mean, those, those are all good points you make. And uh, of course, we cannot be certain how these things are going to pan out. So let's move on and therefore and, and look at how the uh, Polo Capital Technology Trust actually performed. Obviously, as I said, had spectacular long-term record, but it has been more difficult recently. I think you're down about, at least before the recent rally, down around about 30% from the peak, something like that anyway, in share price terms. So one of the things that issues you have, obviously, is the degree of concentration in your benchmark index, which is a global technology index. And you suffer from a result of not having a full weighting in three of the biggest stocks. So you make that point in the annual report, a very, very fair point. But you do obviously have substantial holdings in those three stocks, which are Microsoft, Alphabet and uh, Apple. So you're not a full weighting, but you're, you've still got uh, a significant proportion, something like, I think, 30% in those three stocks. So uh, what is the natural limit, do you think, from a prudent point of view, to stop you actually going for up to a full market weighting? Well, I think it's an excellent question. And I think it's something that sort of um, exercises me and, and the PCT board quite rightly. And, uh, you know, 
it's a very difficult line to tread between you know wanting to fully participate in a market move that's driven by mega caps and also being mindful that the combined risk of those three positions is very meaningful now there's always been concentration risk as a tech investor particularly in a market cap weighted approach that i've adopted for you know like mine for many years and and you know again i i it's a little more elevated than where it stood. Certainly the top three positions haven't been this big, but our top tens have typically been not dissimilar to where they've stood, perhaps a little lower over time. But but you are absolutely right to kind of highlight it as an additional risk, actually, because in the event that Apple was to have a you know an upset or a disappointment at Google, you know, these are very big positions for us and very big positions in the index. And I it is a very easy to solve this challenge. And I, I kind of try to make this point, you know, the concentration risk is also a it's an opportunity, isn't it? And these are unusual businesses, very unusual businesses, natural monopolies, incredible scale. You know, I describe them as um, non-fungible. And I think that's the challenge, isn't it? That, you know, we don't have to have this level of concentration risk in the semiconductor space because there, there are um, a panoply of options, you know, lots of very similar, wonderful businesses. Within the internet, there really is only one alphabet stroke Google and smartphones and uh, app stores, there really is only Apple. And, and obviously in enterprise software and cloud, there really is only one Microsoft. So they are special assets and it's a difficult thing to get right, this line between making sure that we have enough exposure to these non-fungible, wonderful companies, but not to create a risk to our holders that, that's un- unwarranted. So you should expect us to remain meaningfully underweight them, you know, individually and in aggregate. You know, so I don't think you should expect us to have any more in those stocks. But I would also just remind people that, you know, the outperformance of those companies has been very closely linked to their fundamental performance. And I think that's in stark contrast with, say, the 90s, where there were, you know, very large index constituents where they had been driven primarily by multiple repricing or multiple uh, acceleration rather than by the, uh, the underlying fundamentals of the business. So, yes, sorry, long-winded answer, but we're kind of aware of the risk, but we've all, always wanted the trust to reflect the best that the index has to offer. And these are, of course, the best that the index has to offer. So just to put those numbers around that, I mean, I think the last factory, you have something like 11% in Microsoft, 11% in Apple or something around that. Uh, But the index rating is around 15, is is something like that. Is that right? Yeah. So at the year end, we were something like 29% in the three stocks relative to about 41 in the benchmark. And I think if anything, we have a little bit more Apple today than we might have done at year end and the other two stocks are sort of similar so in aggregate not not a dissimilar position to where we stood and I, look i think there has to be a natural limit for, for those just out of interest you know we have limits self-imposed limits that reflect above a 10 percent position size the trust is unable to go overweight a stock uh, it can go up to an index neutral so if apple is 17 of my index i can conceivably go to 17 percent. i have no intention of going to 17 percent in apple but that's where the limits are. Indeed. Now, below that level, and some of the other sort of names that are well known, and I'm thinking here of Netflix, Facebook and Amazon, for example, you've actually made some significant changes. I wonder how you uh, you feel about those three. These obviously are, are much smaller weightings, uh, by and large. They're you know more like the two, three percents. But uh, tell us what you've been doing there just before we move on to uh, you know, perhaps more interesting things. So all three of those stocks um, have had interesting COVID, if I may say that, interesting pandemic periods, all of them, well, perhaps less so meta, but obviously we're all benefiting from sort of increased time spent online, consumers locked down, stores and offices shuttered. And so to some degree, each of those businesses benefited 
um, from increased usage. Meta struggled with advertising, particularly related to travel, which is a decent vertical for the advertising industry. But yeah, I think that it's been a challenging time, actually, or certainly challenging time for the stocks. In the case of Netflix, you know, we were a holder. We're not currently a holder. And there, the business obviously enjoyed a very large degree of acceleration in terms of user addition. And obviously, time spent in the network. And then unfortunately, as the world normalized, so too did their subscriber numbers. And, you know, they've been in reverse. And I think we've gone to the sidelines on that one, just because I think, you know, there are slightly more moving parts to the story than we really anticipated. And it sort of feels like we need to just watch how things like resolving for password sharing and some of the other challenges in the business, how they play out. So we're not current holders of of Netflix. Um, On Meta, we reduced that stock initially because of advertising risk and then we used it as a a conduit really for reopening alongside um, Google um, Alphabet, you know, recovery of ad budgets with a recovering normalizing world. But we've been underweight it now for quite a while. And the challenge I think for Facebook as was and now Meta is just in terms of penetration, really, on some of the core properties and risk from things like TikTok and alternative social media platforms. And then the decision to rebrand and to sort of burn their ships proverbially um, and go all in <laughs> metaverse, I think it's a big, a big thing. And, you know, from our perspective, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg is a genius and has created a category and hundreds of billions of trillions of wealth for, for people. So he deserves the benefit of the doubt. But history, in our experience, casts a fairly jaundiced light on the reinvestment risk of businesses trying to reinvent themselves. And so we're excited to watch the push for the metaverse. But I suspect that the timeline for it is likely to exceed the, or certainly the, my, my time as a manager of the trust. I think we're talking 10 to 20 years away, realistically. So it's an underweight position for us as the company really invests heavily for the metaversal opportunity, but it's a very cheap stock, and therefore something that we're unwilling to have a zero weight in. And then finally, Amazon you know, a natural beneficiary of lockdown and and then ended up not proving to be quite the stock that we had hoped. The cloud businesses continue to do exceptionally well. And I think if any group has benefited, you know, any pandemic change that is likely to endure is likely to be the most endurable one or uh, is likely to be the cloud where just the most perfect testing ground for everything the cloud had to offer was the pandemic. So that side of their business has been incredibly strong. The retail side of the business has been more challenging and the the kind of staccato nature of reopening and not reopening and challenges to the supply chain in China particularly has made it quite hard for the company to manage, much like a lot of other retailers, just for the record, the sort of uh, their stock levels and, and so on. And so we have typically had a one to three percent position in Amazon. Um, very rarely we haven't I've owned it for decades. Currently, we're sort of in the middle of that range, around 2% of NAV. It's 100% active against the index, which doesn't have any Amazon in it. So we're overweight that one. We really quite like it. We've been rebuilding the position following a period of quite uh, meaningful underperformance and a hope that the cloud continues to you know, power profits there. So in terms of the overall market, then I'm just looking at uh, when you reported your annual report, you had, and I think still have, quite a significant uh, amount of cash. And you also have this uh, uh, put option on NASDAQ, which is a kind of defensive little tool, I guess you could say, against uh, any more dramatic moves in NASDAQ's performance. Um, have you changed that or are you likely to change either of those two things? You don't have any gearing, obviously, as well. But uh, is that going to change at all, do you think, over the next uh, six months? Can you see that happening? 
Well, the Nasdaq put that we have, these are very modest, as you kind of alluded to, ways for us to take the edge off the portfolio beta. They're absolutely not designed to deliver absolute returns. You know, they're just a reflection of the fact that when you're a growth investor like we are, there is a natural beta in your portfolio that's very difficult to immunize against. You know, I think the last time I looked, our portfolio beta was something like 1.1, maybe even slightly higher than that. We've been rotating the portfolio back towards higher growth, longer duration stocks that have been very hard hit during this correction. And so one of the ways that you can try to ameliorate the beta during uncertain times is to hold some cash and to potentially hold some NASDAQ puts. The NASDAQ puts have delivered around 14 or 15 basis points of returns this year. That's, you know, it's pretty modest stuff. And right now they're de minimis in the portfolio because we've had a big run and we haven't re-upped our exposure there. So we effectively don't have any NASDAQ puts meaningful. I mean, I think one basis point of premium right now. So liquidity has remained sort of slightly above average levels. We're around five or 6% uninvested today across the portfolio. Again, net of all of that, the portfolio beta, less the impact of cash. You know, it's still a constructive portfolio. I just like the idea of having a little liquidity. Even though it's been a wonderful bounce, it feels to me like we're the market is still in sort of price discovery mode. And again, I'm excited and, uh, and encouraged by some of the recent market action. But in hindsight, this could look a bit like a phony war where the market rallies, but ultimately is disappointed by a number of things that could transpire. So I like the idea of having a little bit of cash in order to be able to buy more of what we like at lower levels, should they materialise. And so looking at your strategy, you mentioned the fact that obviously you have a you have a bias towards growth and a bias towards small cap as well in the portfolio. At least that's that obviously is partly a reflection of the fact you don't have those top three holdings in the same proportions. But you also talk about the dangers of value traps in, in technology. So you're not going to change your strategy, I guess, in terms of your growth orientation or your sort of mild bias towards smile cap, that's sort of built into the cooking, so to speak. Is that a fair summary? No, you're absolutely right. We uh, we are growth investors and you know feel very strongly that the value approach doesn't work within our sector because of some of the uniquenesses of technology investing, you know, most important of which is sort of lack of mean reversion. You know, when you're on the wrong side of history, when you're on the wrong side of technology change, the chance of reinvention, I think, is very limited. If you think about how few companies have, have managed to remain relevant through multiple cycles. And in fact, the earlier question about Apple, Microsoft, uh, particularly those two, they are the exception, aren't they, to, to the rule of how hard it is to reinvent oneself. So we don't do value investing. You know, the first half of 2022 has been one of the most challenging periods for growth investors that anyone has really faced uh, for probably 20 years. The rotation from growth to value has been profound. We we aren't going to take part in that rotation because of you know the way that we invest and and, and our expectation that long term returns should be driven by you know revenue, cash flow, and earnings growth of our underlying portfolio companies. And of course, when you go down a value route, those return profiles are significantly lower than they are when you invest in growth companies. So no, our investors should absolutely not expect us to move to a, a value footing. And as I say, we can move the portfolio from a you know growth to a more barbelled approach with some may, maybe say more semiconductor stocks and more internet stocks if we're excited about the macro condition. And we can flex you know the, the cyclicality in the portfolio without having to delve into you know value stocks. So I think it's fair to say also, having mentioned the fact that the concentration factor cost you performance last year, but actually your kind of active stock picking added value. Uh, if you hadn't done anything, you would have done four to five percent worse than you actually did. So can you just tell us then looking forward into this uncertain environment, of course, but uh, which of the many sort of themes that you follow are you actually uh, 
find particularly exciting at the moment? Perhaps you could just give us a couple of examples. Of course. And um, yes, I think the point you make is a good one, which was that you know the portfolio in 2021 didn't map well to what the market wanted. You know, the, the prior year was all about work from home and lockdown and, you know, things like the internet and software space did exceptionally well. The last year was much more challenging uh, and we made changes. You know, we sold stocks like Peloton, for example, that we had held previously. This is one example of the moves that we made in the portfolio and had we not made them, obviously performance would have been less good. Um, in terms of themes going forward, I mean, I think they're much the same themes that we've been excited about really for, for many years. And many of them tend to lean heavily on the cloud as a just force of disruption, a general purpose technology, if you like, like steel or electricity that ultimately creates, I don't know, a system of change that really the impacts are felt over decades. Um, I think on top of that, I do believe that even though we are reopening and I'm talking to you right now from my office, I think that that there's a sort of new work modality. I think the hybrid work modality is here to stay. And I think that will kind of reinforce the primacy of technology actually going forwards. To highlight a few, I mean, cloud computing remains uh, an incredibly exciting opportunity. We we obviously have lots of exposure here directly to the cloud companies, but also to their capex budgets in the form of data center spending. That could be an Arista Networks or a, a Panoply or a slew of semiconductor companies that are in the data center. But you know the cloud is now 140 billion dollar run rate industry, growing at 37 percent year on year. It's quite quite something. And I remember talking to you many years ago about the cloud before really I think people fully understood what it represented. I, I would highlight in addition, uh, you know, software. Software generally, the ability to deliver software as a service, as an OPEX item, not a CAPEX item, uh, has meaningfully expanded the market. Automation dovetails in very closely with software, more software, more automation, more productivity. I think that we have the kernel of a productivity story here, particularly against the backdrop of a full employment market. And then finally, I must talk quickly on AI. The developments, the progress that's being made in artificial intelligence is mind-boggling. And even within the time that we launched a, an AI portfolio here at Polar more than three years ago, and since then, the progress that's being made in things like natural language processing are astonishing. The ability for a computer or banks of processors to be able to translate language is quite something. And I feel like over the next 10 years, AI will be by far the most exciting uh, and important driver of technology progress and hopefully returns. Do you think there's uh, going to be concentration though in that industry? Are there going to be kind of just a handful of winners as in other sectors that we've talked about already? Or do you think it's going to be more of a uh, pick your winners uh, across the spectrum? Well, I think that um, certainly, I think there is definitely that risk. I mean, in the end, AI and machine learning, ML, are data-driven and therefore companies with the largest repositories or data sets should have a, a very meaningful scale advantage. So I think the answer to the question is probably yes. So certainly in areas like graphic processors, you know, NVIDIA and, and its CUDA programming language that most people use for AI, that sort of setting up, I think, is a bit of a natural monopoly. But then there are lots of other ways to access AI as a theme, and one of our favorite ways of doing it is just the observation that, I don't know, less than 1% of data is really being captured today and analyzed, or maybe it's more like 3% of data today is you know captured and tagged. And so, for example, you, there are lots of different ways of playing the theme of capturing and storing and processing data, something like AMD or chip makers, uh, memory companies like Micron or Samsung Electronics, that are also ancillary ways of playing the trend towards storing and processing and ultimately deriving value from data. But no, I think your point is well made. There is a certainly a natural tendency here to scale. 
I would have thought that would be the case. Uh, I'm quite glad that they've only haven't got round to my data yet. Not part of the 3%, probably. Just on the, another issue about the trust specifically, um, if I may, just quickly. I mean, tech is basically a dollar business, I think. Is, is that fair to say? And you don't hedge the currency at all. You just have the exposure. So the results are going to be affected by the way the dollar and sterling uh, in particular move. Is that going to change? And do you have any thoughts about the dollar? A lot of people think it might finally be about to start to uh, weaken a little. But uh, do you have a thought on that? I mean, we think about it because, as you say, we're a sterling-denominated trust with you know 99% of our exposure to non-sterling assets. We've never hedged. We manage our FX exposure very lightly to try and make sure that we don't have unintended exposures, given how little we have naturally in sterling. Um, but we don't hedge, and honestly, we have no plans to do so. Again, we have conversations about it with the board, uh, amongst the team, but in the end, we're not domain experts. That's not where we think we're going to add value, and in fact, the likelihood is we'll probably detract from value by trying to do something clever like that. So uh, let's stick to our knitting and focus on the tech companies that we hope will deliver outsized returns, you know, above and beyond the index over the medium term. Um, and so no, no, no plans to do anything on the, on the FX front right now. And my final question to you, Ben, is this, I know this is really a board matter, but I thought I'd ask your view on it anyway. In terms of the discount on uh, Polar Capital Technology Trust, it obviously has widened out, has been uh, south of 10% in uh, one or two points. What is the policy of the trust towards, uh, you don't have a formal uh, discount target, but uh, you have been doing some buybacks. Uh, How does the current uh, discount compare to where it's been in the past in terms of a range? So I think the way that we describe it is we do have a formal discount policy. It's just that we don't have a number that we articulate to the market. We feel that that would be probably counterproductive, but but that's just a view. I think that uh, we believe very strongly that we should be in the market to better match demand and supply for our stock. And that to do so is, is accretive for almost everybody and, and almost all stakeholders' interest to do that. So as you say, we've been in the market, we've bought back more than 4 million shares over the last financial year. And we've been in the market almost every day recently that I can remember. How is it today relative to history? You know, it's traded sometime at a small premium. Um, It's equally at the the nadir of of markets in 08-09. I seem to recall it trading in, you know, to the high 20s, albeit very briefly. So there have been periods where it's been wider. There have been periods where it's been narrower. I think that, you know, it's just worth recalling that the portfolio itself is incredibly liquid, incredibly, we we would argue, high quality. Uh, You know, we can liquidate I think across the strategy that Polar manages, you know, the tech strategy that we manage, we can liquidate 95% of, uh, of the portfolio in three days, assuming no more than 30% of ADV. So we don't have any privates. We haven't got anything, you know, venture related. There's no funnies in there. And so the, disc- the discount is the discount. And 7 or 8% over time has proven to be, you know, an attractive discount for the companies we buy back at. So um, that's why you see us in the market. So I'm going to round this all off by just mentioning some of the other Investor Trust, which have produced results this week. I'm not going to cover them in great detail, uh, but as I say, you can find more details on the website. So in the UK, we've had uh, interim results uh, from Rights and Issues Investment Trust, ticker RIII. Uh, this is the smaller companies trust where the manager, long-serving manager, Simon Knott, is uh, about to retire and management of this trust has been given to Jupiter uh, and they will be... Uh, in charge of the portfolio from the 1st of September. The last interim results under Simon Knott's stewardship show uh, NAV down 19.4% against uh, 7.7% for the All Share Index in the six months to 30th of June. So not going out on the highest of notes, 
But the long-term track record of this trust is actually very impressive, despite the fact that it has kept a very low profile for many years. We've also heard from Castelnau Group, ticker CGL. They've had an Q2 update. You may recall this is effectively a kind of spin-off from uh, the uh, investment trust managed by uh, Phoenix Asset Management. A few of their largest holdings, including Dignity, Hornby, Stanley Gibbons and Showpiece Technologies, their net assets are down 8.2%. Uh, part of the market sell-off, so not too unreasonable, but uh, still down. Then we've also heard from Fidelity Japan Trust. In June results, six months, their NAV total return been a very tough period for them, down 31.7% against 10% for the reference index. And there, the share price total return is down even more, nearly 35%, as the discount widened out a little bit. So this has been something of a horror period for Fidelity in Japan, in contrast to their strong and steady performance in Europe. We've also heard from Investor Asia Trust, Annual results to the 30th of April, these are, uh, and their NAV total return over that period was down 6.7% against benchmark total return of minus 12.9%, uh, and a share price total return of minus 10% as the discount widened slightly. Uh, so this is a relatively good performance, but still down in absolute terms. There is a continuation vote on this trust uh, on the 8th of September at the AGM but it has a, a pretty decent track record and uh, I wouldn't have thought there's any particular issues surrounding that continuation vote. This trust sits in the Asia Pacific Equity Income Trust and the trust has uh, over 10 years, it's uh, produced a share price total return of more than 200%, uh, though it is down, as I said, over the last year and uh, modestly up over the last five years, but certainly ahead of its peers. We also heard from Vietnam Enterprise Investments, one of the uh, Vietnamese specialist investment trusts, ticker VEIL. They've had an investment update, second quarter, NAV down 20.5% versus uh, full 29.9%, 20.9% for the reference index in US dollar terms. Share price down 17.3%. Still trading on a discount, this one, a double-digit discount in line with its peers. We also heard from Mobius Investment Trust, ticker MMIT, interim results six months to 30th of June. Net asset value total return down 11.7 and the share price down 17.3% total return uh, as the shares moved out to a 5.7 discount over that period. This is one where the board has said it's going to uh, monitor the monthly average discount as it's gone beyond 5%. And that's normally the point at which they will consider repurchasing shares. In the emerging markets, we've also heard from Fundsmith Emerging Equities Trust, ticker FEET, another one that trades on a double-digit discount. Its interim results uh, for the six months of 30th of June. NAV total return of 16.5% against the benchmark's total return of minus 8.2% and share price decline of 20.9% as the discount widened out to, as I say, more than 10%. This is not a total surprise. It matches, in a way, what's been happening at Smithson, uh, which is obviously also managed by Fundsmith and Fundsmith Equity Fund, Terry Smith's uh, main fund venture. So not such good performance there. Emerging markets obviously hit by strong dollar, among other things, as uh, Ewan was mentioning. Uh, we've also heard from Impact's Environmental Markets, interim results six months to 30th of June. 
Share price down 26.7% and NAV down 17%, which is in both cases uh, worse than the index. And it's material derating during the period, the board reports, uh, with the 12-month forward PE falling from, well, 24.6 times to 18 times. Uh, This is another trust that has uh, a bias towards quality growth, uh, which would be very much out of favour. Over this period, BlackRock Energy and Resources Income Trust, ticker BERI, interim results this time six months to the 31st of May. Uh, and this one has done well, like others investing in the energy sector for obvious reasons. NEV total return plus 25.9% uh, versus, well, it has a whole range of other indices it uh, compares itself to. But the key point, perhaps the share price total return was up 49.7% as the shares moved from a discount to a premium for some period of time. They have sold off again quite sharply more recently. This is a trust that invests both in uh, energy companies directly, uh, but also in energy transition. The uh, trust has uh, had a change in its mandate a couple of years ago and uh, has actually sold off, as I said, in the last few weeks quite sharply, now trading at a discount of around 4 5%. And finally, we've heard some infrastructure and renewables names. They've all produced positive updates. Uh, I'm not going to list them all here, but we will be covering this sector Uh, again quite soon. uh, It's very much a similar story to that we heard from Colette Ord about other renewables last week. Plus, there have been a couple of infrastructure trusts which we'll cover in our next specialist update. So that's it for now. Look forward to having your company again towards the end of August. I will keep mailing out the details of the podcast and there will be continued updates on the website for Moneymaking Circle subscribers, as I've said, of all the results that come out between now and the time that we return. So thank you again for listening. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.